G'day and welcome to episode 23 of The Other Side Australia, your weekly summary of the news and commentary of the week from a sensible centre-right perspective. Coming to you on the discernible platform, all the usual podcast platforms and the Good Source channel in video and audio. This week on the show, the latest craziness in Victoria with the lockdown overreaction, causing huge grief to small business and pressure on jobs and the economy. The reaction is way over the top compared to the actual risk to public health. So what's going on? Well, a new study may have the answer. We've all lost our minds. Tell you more about that in a moment. The astounding public distrust of mainstream media and journalists. We'll tell you about the remarkable response we got to our segment last week on the Today Show's interview with Federal Government MP Craig Kelly and how more and more interviewees are starting to push back very hard on interviewers who go on the attack without getting their facts right. We're also going to have a good look at the COVID vaccine. Everyone says it's different to normal vaccines and is a new technology. We'll find out exactly how it's different and explain it as clearly as possible so you can make an informed choice. And America. More division caused by the sham impeachment of Donald Trump by the Democrats. We'll find out why YouTube star Dave Rubin shifted from the left to the right politically. And our comedy section today will be taking a swipe at the Great Reset. It's a big show this week. Let's go. If it seems like we may have lost our minds, shutting down entire states over a viral pandemic, which hasn't yet seriously affected the wider Australian population, it may be because we've actually lost our minds. I'm not joking. I wish I was. The only thing more irrational and crazy than Dan Andrews locking down Victoria for five days this week was other states like Western Australia and Queensland, which locked anyone who'd been in Victoria out. We're coming to you from New South Wales this week because I left Melbourne on Friday before the lockdown started, but I can't get into Queensland unless I agree to go into a 14-day lockdown in a government centre. And that's not going to happen. It's insane and it's unnecessary. So I can't see my kids or go to my home. We no longer live in a free and united country. But my problems are nothing compared to people who've lost their livelihoods, their businesses, their jobs, or their health. Not because of COVID-19, but because of our bureaucrats and politicians' overreaction to COVID-19 and very bad policy decisions. In Australia right now, there are only 12 people in hospital with COVID. Not one of them is in intensive care. We've had zero deaths nationwide for almost two months. The seven-day rolling average death toll has been zero for almost four months. Since the pandemic began, the number of people under the age of 70 to die from coronavirus in Australia is 58. The number of people under 80 is 216. That's awful. It's a horrible illness. And there is such a thing as long COVID and after effects for those who've had it. But we've now tested 13.5 million people. That's more than half the population. At $100 a pop of taxpayers' money, I might point out. And only 29,000 people have tested positive, And the vast majority of them have either had a mild illness or no symptoms at all. There's also no scientific evidence that lockdowns are keeping us safe. There's a lot of evidence that they're doing great harm. Firstly, they harm our nation in that they bring a restriction of fundamental human rights and civil liberties and a kind of policing and enforcement that's not welcome, normal or healthy for a modern liberal democracy. Secondly, they harm our economy. Florists and restaurants and all the jobs that they create and the businesses that serve them have suffered enormously from Dan's short, sharp circuit breaker lockdown over the Valentine's Day and Chinese New Year weekend. McGowan and Palaszczuk's lockdowns of Perth and Brisbane were similarly useless and damaging. And most of all, lockdowns affect people's mental and physical health, often with very serious consequences. Lifeline Victoria says it's had a huge spike in calls to its emergency hotline service. This is not funny. Dan, Mark, Anastasia and Scott are not keeping you safe. Our isolation from the rest of the world the huge size of our country and our relatively small population is the main things keeping us safe. And the fear-mongering hype coming from the premiers about a super-fast-spreading UK strain is a big exaggeration. One person with the normal strain might infect probably one other person. One person with the UK strain 
will infect about 1.4 people on average. So what's going on exactly? Well, a new paper published this week in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health may have the answer. The paper is called COVID-19 and the Political Economy of Mass Hysteria. It argues that media and government repetitively driving negative messages may have resulted in a collective hysteria that's contributed to policy errors by governments. What's really interesting about this paper is that it says that while mass hysteria can occur in societies with small government, there exist certain self-correction mechanisms that will limit harm, like people's passion for the property rights and liberties and things. But in a more government-dependent welfare state like Australia, mass hysteria can be, quote, much worse and self-reinforcing when the negative information comes from an authoritative source, when the media are politicised and social networks make the negative information omnipresent. Sound familiar? In summary, these authors, two economists and one social scientist, say that the bigger the power of government in a state or country, the more of a nanny state that you are, the worse the hysteria effect is. Senior economics reporter for The Australian, Adam Crichton, wrote about this study this week, saying that Australia and New Zealand have incurred costs equivalent to a world war and more than any other nation on earth has. All to fight a pandemic that's killed not even a thousand people between both nations, most in their mid-80s. And this is widely seen as brilliant. Crichton writes, having insisted early last year that lockdowns were necessary just to flatten the curve, rolling capital city snap lockdowns of millions of people have now become the norm at extraordinary economic, psychological and social cost without a single person in intensive care across either country. Adam Crichton appeared on Alan Jones' show on Sky News this week to discuss the study. Here's a short clip from that interview. And the paper mm. says this produces mass psychosis. That's an illness where people become disconnected from reality. It's true. Mm. Yeah, look, certainly I find it amazing people actually debate whether we have overreacted or not because our society is actually structured from first principles to overreact massively, whether it's our own biology, which tends to overreact uh, to threats or the mass media, uh, which, of course, benefits... Uh, you know, from the negative side of stories. And then, of course, there's social media now that spreads those stories faster than ever. And then, of course, the, you know, the political class itself actually benefits, if you like, from the yes. overreaction. Yes. Uh, you know, the pecking order of the public sector rises up when it crushes the private sector. You know, the standing of politicians increases, the standing of bureaucrats increases. So, you know, you've got all these incentives for a massive overreaction, and that's, that's what I think we now have around well, the world. Well, see, you and I have said this for months. We're not saying anything new. The research paper now confirms what we've been saying, and I quote from it, they have instilled, this is government, fear in the general public to achieve political goals, exploiting... Mm the negativity bias mm. of the human brain. Mm. I mean, basically, scaring people to yeah. make sure well, they two. comply yeah. with government edicts, eh? Yeah, look, there's two great examples of that. Um, you know, firstly, there was a phrase that the virus doesn't discriminate, which politicians have been saying for months around the world, and we know that is absolute rubbish. I mean, it... it massively discriminates this virus in terms of who it targets. We know that now. And then the second one is this so-called uh, so-called uh, so highly virulent strain from the UK. Sorry, I almost laughed because, as you well know, it's infected almost no one in Australia and yet it's all we hear about all day. The increase in debt in Australia is actually bigger than any other Western country. It's quite extraordinary. You know, you hardly ever hear that in the press. You just hear all this, all this self-congratulation and aren't we brilliant, aren't we amazing? Yeah, that's the point. It's all seen as brilliant. Uh, this is brilliant. Yeah, that's right. Hey? It's all seen as brilliant. And that's the Australian's Adam Crichton speaking to Alan Jones on Sky News this week. You're watching and listening to The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry, your weekly podcast summary of Australia's best news and commentary of the week from a sensible centre-right perspective. Lots more to come on the show this week, so please stay with us. In a moment, we'll discuss the crisis in media following the huge response to our segment last week on Craig Kelly's dramatic interview with The Today Show. We have more clips of interviewees telling interviewers that they've had enough of media bias to show you. Donald Trump acquitted, again, we'll explain what that was all about. And our liberalism education segment this week will feature YouTube star Dave Rubin and the story of his journey from the left to the right. Something I know a lot of you will relate to, as I do. And we have a great reset in our comedy segment today. All of that is still ahead, so stay with us on The Other Side Australia. The COVID-19 vaccine, it has arrived in Australia and the rollout will soon begin. 
If you're like me, you probably didn't know very much about how vaccines work. So I decided to search for the best educational clips that'll explain most easily how they do work, and most importantly, why the COVID vaccines are different. New Scientist magazine has a really good video series called Science with Sam, and they've taken a look at the COVID vaccines. Sam explains that vaccines are like training the immune system up for a big fight so that when you come up against a virus or bacteria in the future, your body already knows how to beat it. So you introduce an antigen, a modified and harmless form of the infection, and then the immune system makes antibodies to fight that antigen. There are four types of vaccines. The first is where the antigen has been inactivated. The second is where it's still active, but it's been weakened, so it's harmless. The third is where only a part of the virus is injected as the antigen. And the fourth is the new kind, like the COVID vaccine. These are called mRNA vaccines, which Sam will now explain much better than I can. Vaccines are a way of training the immune system for a big fight, so that when it comes up against the same opponent in the future, it knows exactly how to defeat it. When you encounter a virus or a bacterium for the first time, your body has a hard time fighting it. But over time, it learns to recognize the danger. Your immune system produces powerful proteins called antibodies that target and eliminate the disease-causing microbes. After you recover from an infection, specialized cells remain in your blood and keep a memory of the pathogen. They're called memory cells. So the next time you face the pathogen, your body can quickly produce the right antibodies to fight it off. Vaccines are a clever way of harnessing this mechanism to make us immune to a disease. They're made of weakened or killed viruses or bacteria that generate an immune response without making us ill. The first vaccine was developed in 1796 by Edward Jenner. At the time, it was commonly believed that dairy maids were immune to smallpox because they were commonly exposed to cowpox, which is a related but less deadly virus. Jenner decided to test this idea by injecting an eight-year-old boy with pus from a dairy maid's cowpox lesions. A few months later, he injected the boy with smallpox and found that the boy was indeed immune. Whoever said science was pretty. Since then, vaccination programs have been extremely successful at preventing diseases and even eliminating some altogether. Smallpox, a disease that killed 300 million people in the 20th century, was finally eliminated in 1980. There are several different ways to make a vaccine. One is to use whole viruses that have been inactivated so that they can't cause a full infection. That might be done using heat. Then there are vaccines that use live viruses that have been weakened so that they can't grow well in the human body. These vaccines tend to generate strong and long-lasting immune responses. For example, the MMR vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella uses three live viruses. Some vaccines just put viral molecules into the body, the important bits that our immune system can recognize, rather than using the whole virus. This is how the injected flu vaccine works, and there are several groups working on this type of coronavirus vaccine. The flu virus, or influenza, is a particularly difficult virus to vaccinate against because there are many variants or strains that circulate. It's like the virus has many hats and it changes them often, which makes it hard for our immune system to recognize it when a new one comes along. To produce the vaccine, the virus has to be grown in chicken eggs in a process that takes many months and millions of eggs. Every year, virologists have to predict which flu strains are going to dominate in the next season so that companies have enough time to make enough vaccine to go around. But sometimes they get it wrong, and even when they get it right, the mutating virus might mean that the vaccine doesn't work as well as we hoped. What we really want is a universal flu vaccine based on parts of the virus that don't change. Research on that is ongoing, but unfortunately it doesn't get as much investment as it needs. A relatively new approach that's being investigated is to make a vaccine containing the genetic instructions for viral proteins in the form of DNA or RNA. Once inside the body, the genetic code causes a person's cells to produce the distinctive proteins that are normally found on the virus. These proteins then trigger an immune response and create an immune memory. There's so much we don't know about how our immune systems react to the virus, and it might not even be possible to generate long-lasting immunity. A vaccine might just mean you get a bit less sick from the disease, or you might have to have a booster every year. To defeat the pandemic, we need to make sure that everyone who needs vaccines gets access to them. We need to think globally, cooperatively, and act less like children squabbling over cookies. To successfully wipe out a disease, a large proportion of the population needs to be inoculated to create what's called herd immunity, meaning there's enough immune people in the population to stop the disease from spreading. And that brings us to another problem. Some people are deeply skeptical about vaccines, and that could be an obstacle to getting vaccination rates up to the level required. This mistrust has been fueled by unfounded scare stories, like the false idea that the MMR vaccine causes autism. All vaccines have to be rigorously assessed for safety before they're used widely, and they continue to be monitored after they're rolled out. Large clinical trials have repeatedly found no link between MMR and autism. Despite this, rising anti-vaccination sentiment has led to a resurgence of measles in the US, with more than a thousand cases reported in 2019. 
And in a recent survey, one in four people said that they wouldn't take a coronavirus vaccine if it was available. According to the World Health Organization, immunizations prevent an estimated 2 to 3 million deaths every year in people from all age groups. By any measure, vaccines are one of the most successful innovations that humankind has ever come up with. That's Science with Sam from New Scientist magazine. The link to the full video and the series is in our program notes, as always. Another good explanation was on CNN. They're not all bad over there. Dr Sanjay Gupta explained the difference between the old kinds of vaccines and the new mRNA vaccine is that the old ones all introduce antigens to help the body make antibodies. But what if the body could be taught to do the whole thing? Not just make antibodies, but also to make the antigens as well. To essentially become its own vaccine-making machine. It's why in the 2000s, Dr. Drew Weissman started focusing on this tiny strand of genetic material that our cells make all the time. It's known as mRNA. mRNA stands for messenger RNA. It carries the instructions for making whatever protein you want. Once you've got the sequence, it's a one-step reaction to make RNA. And that reaction is identical for every vaccine that we make. If this sounds more like code in a computer rather than medicine from a lab, that means you're getting it. This is an entirely new way of thinking about vaccines. It's also the basic technology behind Pfizer and Moderna's COVID-19 vaccines. The vaccine is not the virus at all. It's essentially just a genetic code for a portion of the virus. This portion, the spike protein. Why the spike protein? Because it's the key the virus uses to enter the human cell. But if you create antibodies to the spike protein, it's then blocked. So putting it all together, once the vaccine made up of genetic code is administered through a shot in the arm, our own cells then start making the spike protein over and over again. Now remember, you're just making a part of the virus, so you can't get infected from this vaccine. And within days after that, the body reacts and starts churning out the antibodies. Plug and play. With RNA, all you need is the sequence of the protein of interest. Within weeks, you can have a new vaccine. That's CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta and a link to the full stories in our program notes. Science is amazing and risk management requires us to weigh the risks and make the best decisions possible. Vaccines do have side effects sometimes. Here on the other side, Australia and Discernible, we present this information so you can make a more informed decision. But ultimately, it's up to you and your doctor. Last week, we showed you how Channel 9's Today Show tried to take down federal government MP Craig Kelly over his support for the idea of at least exploring some of the treatments for COVID-19 that our official medicos and bureaucrats have rejected. The Today Show's Ali Langdon's efforts to shame Kelly for daring to break ranks with the almighty health bureaucrats backfired spectacularly on her. Here's a quick recap of some of that interview. The idea that I've somehow been you know, posting misinformation is absolutely misinformation uh, itself. That's not true, Craig. I mean, I spent time online mm. last night and yes. have managed to debunk every one of your theories. They're not peer-reviewed. They're not peer-reviewed. I, I, I don't, don't even want to get into this because, well, I mean, you you're the only person saying this. We've got no, to listen to our that's doctors incorrect. and our scientists. <clears throat> don't yes, you exactly need to doing. pull your head in? Mm -hmm. All our hopes are riding on a vaccine. Yes. You need to be quiet. Well, if you don't want to listen to our most senior qualified I am listening in to them, country, and I think well, you need well, to not. start listening you to just, our scientists you just said, you and just our said, doctors, well, Craig. Our, most, our scientist is our most senior qualified immunologist in this country, okay, Professor Craig. Robert Clancy, and you are not listening to him. I'm sorry. No worries, Craig. You're in a position of responsibility, and I think you're failing in that and duty. And continue, I'll continue to speak the truth and tell the truth. And It'd be nice if, if you wanna, started. If the that media would be great. want to misrepresent my position, I'm going to come on and I'm going to defend it because I will not have slander and smear and said against me when the facts are incorrect. Okay, Craig. Thanks for your time today. One of the leading immunologists that Kelly referenced was University of Newcastle Emeritus Professor Robert Clancy. Here's a quick recap on what he told ABC Radio last week. On that issue, and you know, there are many issues that uh, uh, Mr Kelly has that I, I don't understand. 
But on that issue, um, my view is he's absolutely right, that the, there's overwhelming evidence that um, hydroxychloroquine uh, works. Mr. Kelly has, has actually fired a lot of the literature, uh, and, and I think he understands that, because um, when he says that hydroxychloroquine has a place in early treatment, um, I would think there are many people around the world, very, very senior people across the world, uh, that would totally agree with that. And then I think his other drug is ivermectin, and that's a drug that came in a little later. And that's been gaining ground, and the recent data that's coming out for that is, it's really very persuasive. And many countries now are picking this up. Now, each week we produce a shortcut from the other side of Australia, a 10-minute highlight from the show that we put out on the weekends. This week we put that segment out as our shortcut, and we've never received such an overwhelming response. Almost 4,000 likes... 3,000 comments and 80,000 views on Facebook alone. That's a lot for an Aussie-focused podcast. The question is, why? Well, a look at the comments shows they're 99% damning of Ali Langdon, or the mainstream media generally. In fact, Matt and I were a little shocked by the extent and intensity of the hate. Most of it was critical of Ali's professional conduct, which is totally fine. Some of it was an attack on Ali as a person, which is not okay. She's a human being and has bad days at work like all of us do. She was wrong in this instance, no doubt, but we just couldn't work out why this got such a huge and viral and passionate reaction. In my view, it seems people are truly fed up with the mainstream media either not asking challenging questions when they should, the Victorian Press Gallery and Dan Andrews press conferences, or when they do ask challenging questions, being overly rude and snarky about it instead of professional. In journalism school, we're taught to bring truth to power and challenge those in authority. It's the role of journalists, but it's got to be done in a way that's respectful of the person being interviewed or challenged, or at least respectful of the office they hold. You've got to get your facts right and you've got to do your research. And the other person must be given a fair time to put their case. Hatchet jobs and gotcha interviews are wearing thin on an increasingly media savvy public, I think. And that's a great thing, actually. And it's wearing thin on the interviewees, who these days are not afraid to call it out when they're being dumped on. Take a look at this interview on American CBS cable news network CBSN this week, in which presenter Lana Zak tries to go on the attack with Donald Trump's impeachment lawyer. A bit of background before I show it to you so it'll make more sense. The impeachment was all about whether Trump incited the violence at the Capitol building on January 6th. The Democrats had to prove he did, and they used videos and all sorts of things to try to prove it. More on that later. What happened was it came out in the impeachment trial that the Democrats had doctored and tampered with evidence that they were using to prove the claim that Trump incited the violence. The Democrats didn't deny that's what they'd done once they were caught out. The lawyer for Trump, Michael Vanderveen, spoke with CBS News host Lana Zak after Trump was acquitted. But things quickly went off the rails after Zach appeared to be downplaying the Democrats' tampering with the evidence issue. Throughout the trial, you denied that Mr. Trump had a role in inciting the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. You argued, first of all, that there was no insurrection. But during your closing arguments, you seemingly admitted that there was, in fact, an insurrection, using that word, saying that that, that was not up for debate. What role no, you, did the you, former you president you play? You didn't, you didn't understand the case. I used the word I'll give you the opportunity to clarify, my, sir. Sure. I uh, used the word insurrection in my closing argument when quoting the charging documents. Um, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th is absolutely horrific. But what happened at the Capitol during this trial was uh, not too far away from that. The prosecutors in this case doctored evidence. They did not investigate this case, and when they had to come uh, to the court of the Senate to put their case on, because they hadn't done any investigation, they doctored evidence. It was absolutely shocking, I think, uh, when, uh, when we discovered it and we were able to expose it and put it out. Uh, I think it turned a lot of senators. The American people should not be putting up with this. They need to look at who, uh, who these House managers were, 
uh, and look to see whether these are the folks they want representing them. It was absolutely, it was shocking to me. Wouldn't have believed it. Uh Let's follow up with uh, with a point that you're making right now about the House managers, as you say, doctoring evidence and uh, and the argument. They didn't, de uh, they didn't to be deny clear for it. Our viewers, they didn't deny it. Uh, I put it in front of them to be three clear times. For our viewers, what, what you're what you're talking about now is is a check mark. Uh, that's a verification on Twitter that that did not exist on that particular tweet. Uh, a 2020 that should have actually read 2021, um, and the selective editing you say of, of the tapes is that how is wait, that wait, the doctored evidence wait, wait, of what you're speaking? Wait. That's not enough for you. That's not enough for you? I'm, I'm, I, I, wait, wait, wait. No, sir, no, no. I'm trying. Listen, I, I am not a listen. juror in this trial. That's, what I'm trying to be all, clear for our viewers is what, you, actually, is what you're we, referring we found, to. Because no, not no, everybody no. has found, been following. It's not okay no, not everybody, to doctor sir, a little bit of evidence. Respectfully. respectfully. I have not, not said it is. Question, I have not said it is okay. Ma'am, your question is I want turned. to be clear for our viewers. Listen, what I has to happen is the media has to start. Hmm. Okay, let's just pause there for a sec. What's happened is that the presenter has made out that putting a fake blue check mark, which is a Twitter symbol of credibility and authority for what it's worth, on a tweet that didn't originally have one, and changing a date on another tweet from 2020 to 2021 is no big deal. To me, that is the tone of the question. Now she's trying to make out she was impartially just asking him to explain it. I'm not buying that. Neither is Mr. Trump's lawyer. And he's not just going to let it slide by like most people would either. The media is trying to divide this country. You are bloodthirsty for ratings. And as such, you're asking questions now that are already uh, uh, set up with a fact pattern. I can't believe you would ask me a question indicating that it's all right just to doctor a little bit of evidence. There's more stuff that we uncovered that they doctored to be frank with you. And perhaps that will come out one day. But we won this case, and I'm not a sore loser, but what happened, or a sore winner, I should say, but what should happen is somebody should look at the conduct of these house managers. It, it, it's unconscionable, aside from all of the due process violations that my client had. And the media should be looking that at a square, straight way. A straight way. When I watch the news, I watch one station and it's raining. I watch another station at the same time and it's sunny. Your coverage is so slanted, it's got to stop. You guys have to stop and start reporting more like PBS does rather than a, 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 a TV news show that doesn't have any journalistic integrity at all. What I'm telling you is that they doctored evidence. And I believe your question says, well, it's only a Twitter check and, a, and changing a year of a date here. They switched the date of a Twitter a year to try to connect it to this case. That's not a small thing, ma'am. The other thing they did is they put Sorry. a check mark on something to, to make it look like it was a validated account when it wasn't. And when they were caught, they didn't say anything about it. They didn't even try to come up with an excuse about it. And that's not the way our prosecutors or our government officials should be conducting themselves. And the media shouldn't be letting them get away with it either. I'm tired of the biased media on both sides, left and right. What this country wants, what this country needs, is this country to come together, to take the left and the right and find a middle ground and start responsibly being our public officials, our elected officials. And, the new, and the re, one of the reasons why they do it is because of the media, because the media wants to tell their narrative rather than just telling it like it is. And frankly, I'm tired of it. I'm not a media, I'm not in front of your cameras all the time. Uh, but what right. I've been subjected Sir, I, to I, I, this I last week. I understand, yeah. and I've given you, don't you the opportunity. You want to hear the truth. Yeah. Okay. I've given you the opportunity. I, I will remind you that what I said was that for our viewers who have not been following all of the hours of of this trial, mm -hmm. to be clear about what you what you are speaking about, and I understand. I'm speaking that you about seem the house managers' upset. failure to prove their case. 
That's that, that's what I'm telling and you. They you weren't able to prove their the case. Acquittal. You have won the acquittal of your client. Yes, and if I you'd did. like to continue to talk about this conversation, we can have that discussion. I don't need but, to. Uh, but for me to ask a question, a, a slanted a slant question, viewers, a slanted question that was set up question. to say it's okay for them to cheat. That was your question. Isn't it okay for that. them to cheat? I didn't it's say just that. Just a little bit. You no. said to be fair, it was it's only fine. a check on the Twitter. That's what you said. You gotta live by your words. I, uh, That's I, the problem. The media has to start living by the truth and not try to right. create a narrative. Michael Vanderveen. Yep. Thank you for Citizen. joining us. I, I do appreciate. Yep. Okay. I, I see you taking off your microphone now. That was President Trump's defense attorney, Michael Vanderveen. Poor old Lana Zach looks like she's gonna cry at the end there, and it obviously was pretty upsetting for her. Also, Ali Langdon, no doubt, may be upset about the way people have reacted to her attack on Craig Kelly. It's not pleasant. Live broadcasting is a tough job, and we all make mistakes or go over the top sometimes. I certainly have in the past. So here's a tip, guys. Don't be so aggressive and don't buy into the one side of the narrative so hard that you're not listening and playing that role that you should be playing as a seeker of truth. Show a little humility and humanity. And then when you get caught out, it's not going to be so embarrassing. The response we got suggests that the modern audience is clearly sick of the gotcha style of questioning. The audience wants reporters to do their jobs and be more balanced. It used to be the case in television that what viewers wanted was a Barney or a bit of Biffo and drama. Remember Frontline? Great education on media. It's true. It makes good ratings and clickbait. And that's our fault as viewers, I guess. But I really think people nowadays want more news they can trust. We all have bias, even news shows, let alone commentary shows like this one. On this show, we tell you what our bias is. Free market liberalism, centre-right leaning. And then we try to tell as objective a truth as possible within that framework. But this show is called The Other Side because I started it after coming back to Australia after 20 years away and I felt the public discourse was generally very left-wing in Australia. So we're trying to balance that out a bit, so this show itself won't be balanced. And you can disagree with us, but we hope you'll be more broadly informed if you watch and listen than if you don't. What we won't do is lie to you that we are neutral while pushing a particular ideological agenda. Like, I don't know, the ABC's Michael Rowland? Another example of interviewees calling out journalists' games was Health Minister Greg Hunt's appearance on ABC Breakfast this week. Hunt was being grilled by Roland, maybe quite rightly in this case, I think, for putting the Liberal Party logo on government-paid ads about the vaccine rollout. But have a listen to what happened next. By the Australian uh, it's an Australian people. government announcement. Who, who paid for the vaccines? Well, uh, let us draw a clear distinction here. I, I know this is an issue for you in many ways, uh, you identify with the left. You do this a lot, and, and I respect no, that. No, Minister. No, uh, no, you, no. You, I, I, you're I open about that, and, no, and that's I, I, entirely I find, a matter No, I find that offensive. I'm asking you. Oh, I'm, come I'm on, exercised Michael. about what's There's what's, nobody what's who's right watching who doesn't identify you with the left. I'm and, exercised. And you should be open about that. I'm open about my origins, uh, and, in fact, I ran as an elected representative, and there are numerous other examples uh, across a variety of parties. It's important for you to be honest about your position and your origins. Uh, I'm honest about my position and my origins, and indeed uh, I was elected by the Australian people on that basis. I'm bemused, but I did predict but, to people that okay. Michael Rowland would spend 50% of this interview no, on this topic, rather than on the safety of vaccines, right rather than wrong. on the rollout I mean, of vaccines, uh, rather than on the protection of the Australian public. I'm very exercised about that as public. well, but it just struck me as odd seeing a and I'd ask the same question about uh, the Labor governments, a party political logo attached to an Australian government announcement. Yeah, interviewees are not sucking it up anymore. And that's Health Minister Greg Hunt on ABC News 24 Breakfast this week. After calling for unity following the US election, the Democrats, in an incredible act of disunity, sought to impeach Donald Trump, a former president. It's not even clear constitutionally whether that's even legal. So why did they do it? Because they don't want him to run in 2024. If Trump was impeached, he'd be ineligible to run. 
They also want to pin him and all Republicans with the blame for the January 6 violence at the Capitol building in Washington. And they want to keep the media focus on that story. The Democrats were hoping enough Republicans hate Trump so much and want to stop him from running again that they'd cross the floor and vote with them. But it didn't happen. Only seven Republicans have voted with the Democrats and they didn't get the two-thirds supermajority they need for an impeachment to go ahead. The impeachment centred around whether or not Mr Trump actually incited the protesters to violence. Here's how CNN reports it. It was one month ago this weekend that a terrorist MAGA mob fed lies for months about the election stormed the Capitol, an insurrection that cost at least five lives, including Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. A terrorist MAGA mob. Hmm. An insurrection. Hmm. It's interesting language in the first 12 seconds there for someone covering a story about the dangers of using inflammatory language. Now have a look at how CNN edits what Trump said. But they did not think that they would be held accountable for their actions. We're gonna walk down to the Capitol. You'll never take back our country with weakness. And indeed, a number of these insurrectionists are now saying that they did what they did because they thought the then president, Donald Trump, wanted them to. Well, just because they thought that doesn't mean he did. Here's the whole clip of what Trump said that day. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today, we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections, but whether or not they stand strong for our country. Did he say march peacefully and patriotically? Oh, he did. Okay. Here's how Sky News commentator James Morrow saw it all. This whole impeachment trial, we knew it was a charade. We knew that it was about just trying to stick a nail in the coffin of Trump. And we knew that it was also about trying to tar every single American who supported Donald Trump with the mantle of being exactly the same and exactly as bad as the people who tore up the Capitol building on January 6th. And that's a very sinister thing that they're trying to do, essentially cancel 75 million Americans. But I'm reminded of what something I think Tucker Carlson said the other day, which is that there is nobody so miserable, Rowan, as a Democrat who has just won an election. And that's what we've been seeing ever since the results were finally certified. We have not seen, you know, hosannas and singing in the streets. I saw a little bit of that in New York when we were there in November. But then it just went right back to the we must destroy Trump. We must destroy the enemy thing. And, you know, Biden talks about unity, but they've got a hell of a way of showing it. Indeed. That's Sky News Australia commentator James Morrow. You're watching The Other Side Australia. I'm Damien Curry. Or you're listening to The Other Side Australia on our podcast platforms. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on the discernible channels on YouTube and Facebook. The audio version of the show is available on all top podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify, for those of you who just like to listen. And we're also on the Good Source platform, S-A-U-C-E. If you'd like to help us grow, subscribe on all the platforms. Uh, and please tell your friends about the show. That's the most effective thing you can do is tell five or 10 or 20 of your friends. And join the Discernible crew by visiting www.discernible, with an A, dot I-O. An unusual workers' comp case in Tasmania was resolved this week after three years of legal wrangling. A man who fell and broke his leg while walking his dog has won compensation as if the incident arose in the course of his employment, because he was on call at the time. The Tasmanian newspaper The Advocate reports that in May 2018, a hydro-Tasmania employee was walking with his partner and their dog along a lake when he slipped on a log and broke his leg. At the time of the incident, he was on call at the employer's accommodation in Western Tasmania. If you're on call at this company, you can do whatever you like, but you have to stay where you can answer the phone and be able to respond to a call within 15 minutes. About a year later, the worker made a claim for compensation. A year later. Hydro Tasmania, a state government energy company, disputed the claim, saying his injury, quote, did not arise out of or in the course of his employment. The case went before the Workers' Rehabilitation and Compensation Tribunal of Tasmania and the Chief Commissioner, Alison Clues, oversaw it.
Clues immediately ruled out any direct connection between the injury and work. But she found that, quote, when regard is had to the time, place and circumstance of the activity, as well as the general nature, terms and circumstances of his employment, the connection becomes far less remote and the injury can be said to have occurred in the course of the worker's employment. So if you have a business and you have workers on call, be careful. You know, what this will lead to is bad for employees too, because employers will now be very restrictive on what they're gonna let staff do while they're on call. Less freedom all round. Well, it's time for our liberalism education segment. And this, le- this week, we're going to take a look at a guy who had a similar journey to me from centre left to centre right, caused by a rejection of the same thing, the hypocrisy and authoritarianism of the modern woke left. And I know a lot of you have had the same journey. Mark Levin is one of America's most intellectual right-wing thinkers, writers and broadcasters. He has a show on Blaze TV, a daily radio show, and a weekly show on Fox News, in which he's now trying to give a bigger platform to younger conservative thinkers. People like Dave Rubin, the YouTube star, whose show The Rubin Report has gone from strength to strength. This week on Levin's Fox show, he spoke to Rubin about his journey from the left to classical liberalism. And I think it's a great interview. It kind of puts words behind what a lot of us are probably feeling and thinking. Dave Rubin, you weren't always a sort of libertarian slash conservative. Uh, in fact, you were a, a progressive for much of your uh, young career. Tell us what happened, why you decided, wait a minute, maybe these guys on the other side make more sense. And you eventually sort of moved over to what I call classical liberalism or the liberty agenda. What was it that caused you to do that? Sure. You know, I do still consider myself even now a classical liberal, and Don't Burn This Book was my way of laying out all of my classically liberal principles that, as you're sort of implying, in a a modern sense, makes you a moderate conservative or a libertarian, and we can always whittle around what those issues are and where the government should be involved or not be involved or things like that. But yes, I was a Bernie supporting lefty. You can find videos of me five or six years ago supporting Bernie, believe it or not. Uh, there were there were several reasons for that. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I think if you grow up in an American public education system and getting the American culture, the American, uh, the things that fall within the Overton window of what's acceptable in America, you're, everyone is sort of a default lefty. You have to come to conservatism. You have to come to libertarianism. You have to come to the idea of individual rights and freedom and liberty and all the things that you've been writing about and talking about for so many years. So you sort of, if you just grow up, you're just kind of a lefty. It's sort of like, oh, Democrats are nice, Republicans are mean, liberals care about poor people, conservatives care about money, Democrats are for peace, Republicans are for war. Now these are all silly factory setting ideas that once you dig a little deeper you find are not true. And then I had a series of events about five years ago uh, that caused my wake up. And I would say I have no problem being called a conservative at this point, just to be very clear. What, What really is so beautiful about the conservative movement right now is it is an extremely wide tent. You know, what's happening on the left is basically it's it's you're woke or you're out, meaning if you don't select these 10 things that the woke people want and you have to do it the second they want you to do it, then you're out. Well, what that does is it creates incredible opportunity for people on the right to say, hey, you know, we've got some sort of traditional conservative uh, religious Republicans, let's say. We've got more libertarian-minded people. We've got hardcore MAGA people. We have more, uh, you know, either neocons or more generic Republicans. That's a pretty wide swath of people. And I would say I fall a little more on the libertarian side of that. And that's a great place to have interesting debates. And what I find is when I go to, you just mentioned Charlie Kirk, when I go to Turning Point events, I talk about some things that I know that the average conservative may not agree with. And guess what? They say, hey, we're happy you're here and let's keep discussing it. Usually what they say with a smile on their face is, hey, we'll get you eventually. But they're down to have the debate where there really is no debate on the other side. Well, let me ask you about this. Let me ask you about the other side. Even when you were, quote unquote, with the other side, was it as totalitarian? My word, was it as totalitarian as we see it today? That is anti-free speech, anti-choice in all things but abortion. 
uh, anti-intellectualism, um, anti so much that is important in a free society. Yeah, no. Something happened. What happened to the JFK liberal? What happened to ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country? I mean, really think about that statement. JFK, who was a liberal Democrat, although he did want to get out of wars, which is now not something Democrats want to do, and he also did want to reduce taxes, which is certainly not something Democrats today want to do. But ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That is 180 degrees absolute opposite of what Bernie and all of the Democrats, including Joe Biden, say now. They say, oh, we can give you this. We will give you this for free. We will artificially raise this wage. You will get free education. You will get free health care. And that's the reverse of actually what true liberalism is. So it, for me, it's sort of a debate on do I want to keep trying to save the word liberalism and show people that classical liberals are, are actually modern conservatives? Or do I just want to say, hey, I'm a conservative now? That's more of a semantic argument. But no, liberals were not always like this. The woke totalitarian uh, progressive ideology that has now destroyed almost all of our cultural institutions, our educational institutions, certainly our political institutions, it, that is a, a relatively new phenomenon that was brewing at the academic level and then it just burst forth into, into society. I was warning about it for a couple of years and people kept saying to me, no, no, when these kids get out of college, the real world, that'll set them straight. And unfortunately, that's not how it's worked out. And that's Dave Rubin of The Rubin Report speaking to Mark Levin on his Fox show this week. We'll put the link to the full interview in our program notes. If you want a simple, easy to read and understand intro to all these ideas of classical liberalism, I can highly recommend Rubin's book, Don't Burn This Book, and any of Mark Levin's works. He's written a number of terrific books and a lot of the American story is similar, of course, to the Australian situation. So Mark Levin, that's L-E-V-I-N, Dave Rubin, R-U-B-I-N, and Rubin's book is called Don't Burn This Book. Comedy time, and I could not go past one of my favorite social commentator comedians, J.P. Sears, who this week tackles one of the biggest threats to individual and national sovereignty our planet has ever seen, the Great Reset. Now, if you haven't heard about the Great Reset, take a rewind back to The Other Side, episode 14, which you'll find on our YouTube channel or on Apple or Spotify. It's one of our early audio-only episodes. Matthew and Josh have also done some great episodes of their show, The People's Project, also uh, looking at the Great Reset as well. And you'll find those, of course, on the discernible platform. Now, the Great Reset is an initiative of the World Economic Forum, the group that brings 3,000 of the world's business and government leaders and elites together for a chat fest in Davos, Switzerland, every January. You can check out all about the Great Reset on the WEF's website. It's not a kooky conspiracy theory. It's just a real conspiracy. The WEF was founded by a German businessman named Klaus Schwab in 1975. J.P. Sears explains more about what the Great Reset's all about. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum, which is a group of the richest people in the world who want complete control of the world. Recently, Schwab endeared the world when he said, by 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy about it. Wow, that seems like a win-win, and he believes you're dumb enough to fall for it, and you kinda are. So here's how it'll work. Under the World Economic Forum's vision, governments and the super rich who already control the governments will own everything. That's a win for them. Meanwhile, you own nothing, which is a win for you, according to them. But you'll be allowed to rent things from the government that you need, like clothes, shelter, and a pacifier for your baby. You'll also receive an income from the government Sounds great, doesn't it? In this innovative vision of freedom, you'll be completely controlled by the government because you're completely dependent on the government. <laughs> I smell a social credit score. Will there be a social credit score that requires you to be strictly obedient to the government in order to receive your meager rations? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Does the World Economics Forum vision sound like socialism, communism, and totalitarianism? No because they're calling it something different. The Great Reset, actually. First, let's be clear. For all of human history, socialism, communism, and totalitarianism has always worked swimmingly. <laughs> it's never created super oppressed and abused people. 100% of the time, 
It's never done that. That's why you've always seen people from capitalist countries like the US risking their lives to flee to communist countries. But if socialism, communism, and totalitarianism is so great, and indeed it is, why are some slightly skeptical about Klaus Schwab's agenda? <laughs> well, that question sounds like hate speech. So we'll gladly censor any attempt to even ask it. A better question that you're allowed to ask is, how are the very empowering to the people forms of government, such as totalitarianism, even accepted by the masses in the first place? Now that's a great question. And the answer that you're commanded to accept is, they prey on you by glorifying how great it would be if they took the burden of self-responsibility off your shoulders. Then you no longer have to create your own income, worry about food, or buy things, because those things take hard work. So wouldn't it be easier to let people rule over you so they can do those things for you? In addition, they also take away people's ability to work, even if they want to, which creates further dependency on the government. This just in, over 100,000 small businesses in the US have closed because of the government mandated lockdowns. Now does all this talk of the World Economic Forum wanting a socialist communist state for the entire world seem a little far-fetched? Maybe like a conspiracy theory? <laughs> well, it is. That's why on the World Economic Forum's own website, they're advocating for more Marxism. And if you're too mentally lazy to know what Marxism is, that's why it's all around you already. You've allowed it through your obedience. But don't worry, the water will soon get up to a full boil if you continue not recognizing what you're willingly sitting in. Why would Schwab and the super rich want to rule over you in such a totalitarian way? Well, that's not what they're doing because they call it something different. The World Economic Forum uses cool propaganda to manufacture your consent. They use compelling and definitely not misleading words like sustainability, climate change, and improving the state of the world, because that's what they're doing. The World Economic Forum recently had admirable and highly altruistic world leaders address their audience. World leaders like Xi Jinping, the head of the Chinese Communist Party. After his surprisingly pro-communism sounding address, he helped improve the state of the world by immediately having to return to China so he could continue not allowing World Health Organization investigators into his country. Acclaimed humanitarian Vladimir Putin also addressed the audience so they can aspire to be at his level. Putin's sustainability and climate control efforts have recently included having his chief political rival, Alexei Navalny, poisoned because he dared speak out against Putin. After the hit attempt failed, Putin simply had his chief political rival thrown in prison to help improve the state of the world. And that's the American comedian J.P. Sears. Sometimes it's a little too real to be funny. That's because it's real. Make sure you check out JP on YouTube. His channel is called Awaken with JP and we've put a link to the full sketch in the program notes for you. And that's it for our show today, folks. Thanks a lot for joining us again. Remember to subscribe at discernible.io or Apple, Spotify and the Good Source platform and tell your friends about the show. Share, share, share if you want to support us and we will see you next week. And in the meantime, don't let the woke kids get you down.